So when I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, public school, every Christmas we would stand up, the whole elementary school would stand up and we would quote Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Boom. And then oftentimes there would be a Christmas play in the area, especially at school. There would be, uh, of course, various people involved. For, the, for us boys, we had three parts potentially to be involved in. We could be Joseph, wise men, or shepherds. And in, in my particular group, I've asked people, who, who would you want to be? And a lot of people say, no, Joseph. And I said, well, not, not me, because Joseph stands there smiling. That's all he does and at the manger. And, but, but, but the wise men, that was the plum calling. That was to be longed for because the wise men wore these ornate, beautiful robes, had really cool gifts, and usually a turban with a diamond on it. And so we wanted to be wise men. The people we did not want to be were shepherds because shepherds kind of, instead of three of them, there were 15 or 20, and they traveled in mass, and they all wore robes that were kind of oatmeal-colored and... Um, nondescript, and kind of boring. So didn't want to be a shepherd. I got a picture of a couple of shepherds that are a little bit more jazzed up than we were. There's the shepherd with the livestock and another shepherd, again, with a lamb. So that's the Christmas play. It's interesting that in not wanting to be shepherds, there was an intuitive understanding among us that's echoed in the Bible. Because when you study the Christmas narrative and the birth of Jesus, the shepherds, we believe historically, were from the lower rung of society. They were uneducated. They were day laborers and known for their thievery. So they were from the lower echelons of the Jewish culture. So there's this intuitive grasp that you don't want to be a shepherd. And yet in this birth narrative in Luke chapter 2 that you heard in the Advent reading, the living God in glory appears to these outcasts. It's an incredible statement that the gospel is indeed good news of great joy for all people. And so when the angel appeared, he said, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. Fear not. See, see fear was, would be an optimal emotion. You're sitting there and they darken countryside, there's no electricity, there's no lights, there's just some, maybe some stars that's out there, and you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, boom, there's an angel, and the angel is surrounded with the glory of God, and the angel says, fear not. But it's interesting, in Luke chapter 1 and 2, there are several times where the term fear not is uttered by an angel. In Luke chapter 1, verses 10 and following, John's daddy, Zechariah, is in the temple. He's doing his priestly thing in the temple all by himself. Everybody else is outside. And all of a sudden, an angel appears at the altar, and the angel says to him, fear not. And Zechariah says, was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, you will name his name John. Just a few verses later, the angel of the Lord appears to a woman named Mary, who would be the mother of Jesus. And this is what the narrative says in Luke 1, 29 and 30. But she was greatly troubled, or she feared at the saying, 
when the angel said, you are chosen of the Lord. And she tried to discern what this greeting might mean. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So fear, fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So, so I want to ask two questions this morning as we think on this first or this last Sunday before Christmas. Why is it good news? And why fear not? And let me tell you, the difficult thing about being a pastor and preaching on the Sunday before Christmas is because you guys know what I'm going to say before I say it. You've done, if you've been a Christian very long, you, you, you've heard Luke 2, you've heard the Christmas story. I started to throw you off this morning by preaching on the ontological equality of the Trinitarian nature of God, or maybe doing a brief study of the book of 3 John or something like that, but no, I said, no, we need to celebrate the Christ event on this last Sunday before Christmas. So, so let's celebrate it afresh by remembering and rejoicing and being very glad if you're a believer, if you're not a believer in Jesus May this be the Christmas that your heart sings unbidden because you understand why Jesus came and who Jesus is. So the first question, why is it good news? Why is it good news of, of, of great joy? And the answer is because the angel announced the birth of the Savior, who is Christ and Lord. Savior... Christ, Lord, this, this is the only time this combination of words is used in the same sentence in the New Testament. Savior, Christ, Lord. Savior means you're delivered from your enemies. You're delivered from comprehensive problems. You're delivered from peril. You're delivered from diseases. You are delivered. Luke intends for the reader to see the meaning of the terms in rescue or delivery. Jesus is the one who brings God's salvation, so he's called Savior. In the book of Matthew, Joseph... The father of Jesus on earth had, 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 had a dream, and the angel said to Joseph in a dream, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He saves us from our sin. That's why it's good news. It's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. And that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Iniquity is pardoned. How can this be? Verse 5. For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. Iniquity is forgiven because the glory of God will be revealed to us in bodily form. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the judgment or iniquity or sin of us all. Or the book of Zechariah, near the very end of the Old Testament, chapter 12 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child." You say, well, what will happen? Zechariah, the next chapter says this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. <laughs> against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. 
Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Jesus, the Lamb, opens a fountain to cleanse his people. The shepherd, the good shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. He is Savior because he saves us from our sin. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Do you glory in that? He is Savior. He is Messiah, the anointed one, the long-expected Jesus. He is Lord or God. He's Deliverer. He's Messiah. And he's God. And so these shepherds were guarding the sheep. Understood that probably many of these sheep were being fattened up for the sacrificial system. The Old Testament has a sacrificial system where the lamb sacrifice covers them from year to year to year. They're looking for the ultimate coming of Messiah King. But there was this year to year to year probationary period as they looked for Messiah to come. And so the, these, these men were guarding sheep that were going to be sacrificed. Longing for the fulfillment of their dreams. And that's why the book of Hebrews is all about the work of Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. A few comments. In Hebrews 10, it says this. For since the law has but a shadow, see, a shadow of the good things that come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's a shadow. And, and, and it cannot in any way make perfect those who come to the sacrificial system because it's just year to year to year. And then it says later in the text, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5, listen. Consequently, when Christ, Messiah, came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Christ became a man, had a body to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The probationary period is over. Full access to God. This week Spurgeon said this in Morning Even I thought it was outstanding. Says, said this, that the law shows the distance which there is between God and man. The gospel bridges that awful chasm and brings the sinner across it from the first moment of your spiritual life until you are ushered into glory. The language of Christ will be to you come Oh, Lord, come. Come. The probationary period is over. And so what's amazing is, is not that the child is to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. What's amazing is that the child, Messiah, King, Savior, Christ, Lord, is born in an animal room. And what's truly amazing is that this Messiah, King, this God, this eternal creator, born in an animal room would be crucified between two robbers. And what's amazing is that as he was wrapped in swaddling clothes when he died, 
He would be wrapped in a shroud. But he rose victorious over death. And so the glory of the gospel is that Christ is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. It's good news of great joy for all people. So the second question is, why, why, why do we fear not? Throughout the gospel, so this, I've read three examples, just the first two chapters of Luke. Time after time, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Mary, do not be afraid. Shepherds, do not be afraid. And I was thinking, you know, why, why fear not? Well, of course, the opposite of fear is assurance and, and peace. And the Bible says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 5. I, I know that. So there's no fear because the God that seemed at times so distant and so far and was approachable only through a sacrificial system and was probationary and it was from year to year, this God now has thrown open the, the temple. He's torn the temple from top to bottom to separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the, tem- rest of the temple. Wow! And he says, come on, come, come to me, all your weary and heavy laden, come. So, so, so my question is, what do people fear and why do we not fear it? People fear death. People fear death. And the reason most people fear death is because of what awaits. They have no idea what awaits. Is there, what's going to happen? Dying is hard. Getting old is hard. Life is difficult. Please don't misunderstand me. But, but the Bible says that because of who the Lamb of God is, Jesus, God in the flesh, then we no longer have the fear of death. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. It says this. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because Jesus is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And because he died on the cross for our sins, there is not the craven fear of death because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What hope? What hope that lets you smile at tomorrow? Many of us, at any age, have been beside people you love and care for who slowly died. And there is terror unless there's hope. Now, whenever I do funerals, I often quote a man named John Dunn who was a British poet in the 1500s, 1600s, Anglican pastor, and he wrote this. It's a very well-known poem. It goes, Death be not proud. Death be not proud. Though many have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou overthrow, die not, poor death, nor canst thou kill me. For one short moment, and we wake up in eternity and death, Thou shalt die. And so Dunn says, death, don't, don't strut around me. Don't be proud. Don't, don't bring to mind to think that you're going, to, you're going to overthrow me and conquer me because Jesus has conquered the grave. So we say with the Apostle Paul, death was your victory, grave was your, is your sting. So, so fear not, this is church, fear not. And also, so the, the, the fear of the unknown or tomorrow 
is a fear that grips our hearts. The Wall Street Journal and NBC released a poll this week on Monday, and it said uh, this, the 70% of Americans feel our country is going the wrong way. And then ask this question, what is the greatest concern for you today as Americans? And 40%, which is by far and away the highest percentage, said our greatest concern today is national security and terrorism regarding how our government can address that. The next highest was 23%, 43-23% said that our greatest concern is job creation and economic growth. And the concern about terrorism is up 19 points since the month of April, which NBC said is a cataclysmic jump up. And we have been inundated with news about random acts of terror, whether it's here in our city or in San Bernardino or in Paris. Or in this week we will remember the one-year anniversary in Pakistan of some militant thugs that went into a school and just started executing children. And yet, as I think about that, I believe the Bible teaches, church, from Genesis to Revelation, that God is in control of my life. I believe that nothing happens to me without the knowledge, approval, and watch care of my Heavenly Father. That no one can snatch me from the hands of my Savior, and those hands have nail prints in them. And so... When it comes to tomorrow, when it comes to 2016, I say, Lord, I don't understand everything, but I trust you. And then that's why I meditate on verses or passages like Psalm 91 that says, uh, Surely he will free you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You shall not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks at night, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. You shall only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you and no plague come near your tent. God is God. I, I believe he's numbered the hairs upon my head, as Jesus said. I believe my life is in his hands. And so I look to tomorrow with confidence and joy and certainty that God is God. If I did not believe that, if I were a well-spoken, well-meaning, good-hearted secularist who believed that everything was just impersonal plus time plus chance and you may go to Chipotle's and get a virus and you'll die the next day. If I really believed that, I would not get out of bed. And I'll certainly make all my own food. But I believe God is God. So, so the third fear is, is fear of rejection. And we've all had rejection, rejection hurts, rejection, broken relationships. It's, 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 it's a fearful thing. And yet when I think about the Lord Christ. I think of him by a guy named J. Wilbur Chapman that says, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, love robbed my soul. 
Friends may fail me, foes assail me, but he, my Savior, makes me whole. And I said, you know, friends, this, I'm a friend to people. I fail them. Foes will assail us, but he, my Savior, makes me whole. And I love to read in the Bible where the Scripture says in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what that passage is saying is, don't make money your God. Don't make acquisitions your synonym. Because God has promised in his triune glory to never leave you. Or I go to John chapter 10, and Jesus says, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand, because the Father is greater than everything. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give them life. And so while I fear at times making ponderous mistakes and blowing it, I never fear being rejected by the Father. Yes, Abba Father disciplines those whom he loves, but he never rejects us. He never abandons us. And in a culture that's filled with abandonments and brokenness, isn't it glorious to say God does not reject or abandon his people. Makes me want to sing. The, the fourth fear I just talked about is, 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 is I, I with great joy don't fear FOMO. FOMO it really made its way in the dictionary in 2013. It's an acronym that stands for the fear of missing out. Forbes magazine had an article three months ago about, about young adults, and they go, feverishly go, and they feverishly go, and they feverishly go because they do not want to miss out. And it says it's not just young adults, it's all Americans are going at a feverish pace because you don't really want to go to the dinner party, but why don't they serve that particular hors d'oeuvre that you've been waiting for all of your life? Yeah, I'll put up with two hours of boring conversation because the food is going to be great. You don't want to miss a committee meeting because something may really happen at committee meeting. You don't want to miss, it's the fear of missing out. And I, the, the fear of not experiencing the best, the fear of not having joy, the fear of not doing this, the fear of not doing that. It's called FOMO, and that baby's having a FOMO movement, fear of missing out. And then, and then there is a, a self-help test given regarding, do you suffer from FOMO? Five questions. Do you look at social media 15 minutes after waking up. At last service, I said 15 minutes before waking up, which would be really uh, different to do. Do you look at social media 15 minutes after waking up? Do you look at social media during breakfast? Do you look at social media during lunch? Do you look at social media during supper? Do you look at social media 15 minutes before you go to bed? If three out of five is yes, you have FOMO. You think about social media. Nobody puts, say, I've had a horrible day today on Facebook. Here's a picture of my horrible day. You don't do that. So it just breeds this fear of missing out. Let me tell you something. If you know Jesus and you're following him, he has come that you may have life and have it to the full. Joy. Joy. Let me give you a quote. This, this, I started to jazz this up a little bit and ask you if this was made by Deepak Chopra, Oprah, or who else. But listen. Here indeed is the best bridle to control all passions. The thought that nothing is better than to practice obedient living before God. Then that the ultimate goal of the happy life is to be loved by Him. Do you ever think that God wants you to be happy? God wants you to be happy. 
And the ultimate goal of the happy life is to realize you're loved by God. Who said this outlandish, Oprah-sounding statement? John Calvin. Octavius Winslow. Isn't that a great name, Octavius? He's a guy that died in 1885. And this is what he said. This is good. The child of God is... From necessity, a joyful man. His sins are forgiven. His soul is justified. His person is adopted. His trials are blessings because God uses them. His conflicts, victories. His death, immortality, eternal life. His future is a heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, and endless blessedness. With such a God... Such a Savior and such a hope, is he not? Ought he not to be a joyful man? People send to me sometimes, oftentimes, how are you doing? And if I have the chance, I say to them something like this. I say, I'm doing really good. My sins are forgiven. I've been adopted into the family of God. Undeservedly so. I'm married to a wonderful woman. I enjoy what I do. And if I die today, I go to heaven. I'm doing great. Well, thank you. Here's your chicken sandwich. You know? <laughs> and so, so, you know, you just, just think about it, church. Just think about this, this is who we are. This is who we are. We do not fear FOMO because we're living in the reality of Christ. And as we celebrate this season, look at this dude. I'm not anti-Santa Claus, but here's my, how is Santa Claus a metaphor for all the world's religions? I'll tell you how he's a metaphor for all the world's religions. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's what? Naughty and nice. That's Islam. That's Buddhism. That's Hinduism. Seriously. It's all about merit. It's all about earning favor. Every one of them. It's all just that's what Mormonism is. You name it, Jehovah Witnesses, the whole deal. But the gospel is all about grace. There's no list. There's no checking it twice. There's just the Lamb's book of life. Names recorded there who have trusted in the one who died on the cross for their sins. And so this God who knows everything I've said, done, thought, or will think, say, or do, says, I love you. Because of the cross. He is Savior. He's Messiah. He's Lord. That's good news. We say fear not. In 1970, there was a woman at Brandeis University on full scholarship, a brilliant young woman named Catherine Ann Power. And she became involved in a radicalized group that wanted to overthrow the U.S. government and so they would steal and they would fund radical movements around the country. And so one day she and her two friends robbed a bank in Boston, Massachusetts, 1970. And um, she was driving the getaway car. And in the bank robbery, they pushed a button and a policeman responded, a highly decorated officer named Walter Schroeder. And as they fled the bank and Schroeder was coming in to the bank, they fired and hit him in the back. And he died in the pool of his own blood two minutes later. Leave behind nine children, nine children, and a 41-year-old widow. 
And Catherine Ann Power and her friends went to the underground, fled. She ended up in Oregon. And in the year uh, 1993, she came out of hiding. And she surrendered to the authorities. Um, And this is what she said. She said, I'm surrendering today because I want to live with full authenticity in the present moment. I have no idea what that means. Only with full authenticity. Her husband said, I want to make it very clear. My wife is not surrendering to the authorities today. She's on the top 10 most wanted list by the FBI. My wife is not surrendering today because she feels guilt or sorrow. It's because she wants to deal with her own personhood. And I thought, shouldn't there be guilt and sorrow and deep recrimination because you participated in an act that took the life of a defenseless man and left nine children without a daddy? Four of those kids became policemen in the Boston Police Department, by the way. And, and so I, I thought about her response uh, of non-guilt, non-sorrow, no need for a savior, no need for help compared to a, a, a king who in middle age saw a beautiful woman taking a bath, took her into his house. She was married. He had sex with her. She became pregnant. He killed her husband and took her as his consort, queen, and he was miserable because David understood there was objective guilt and there was need for a covering. There was need for a savior and there was a God who established a law. And so he pins Psalm 32. This is a beautiful psalm. And he starts off by saying this, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When, see David covered up his adultery and his murder. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. For through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So David says, you know, Yes, I sinned. Yes, I did wrong. And God's hand was heavy upon me. And I knew that I needed a Savior because I violated the standards of God. And that's how you come to know the gospel. You say, I need a Savior. Sin has separated me from, from a holy God. It may not be adultery or murder, but it's all types of other issues out there. It may not be murder in a bank guard, but there are other issues out there. David experienced the joy of sins forgiven because he says, I can't do it on my own. I need a Savior. That's why this is good news of great joy for all the people, all all people, everywhere. That's why we take the gospel out. That's why we preach the gospel and plead with people to come to Jesus. Because it's good news of great joy for all the people. Because of that, we fear not. We fear not. Let's let's pray. Close in prayer, okay? Lord, thank you for this day and for the tender mercies of the cross. Thank you that the, the shepherd king, David, said that when I kept silent about my sin and didn't run for the Savior, 
when I tried to cover it up, your hand was heavy upon me. Thank you, Abba Father, that your hand is heavy upon us when we don't run to the gospel. And thank you that in your wonderful, tender mercy, you announced the birth of Jesus to numerous groups, one of whom was a group of day laborers who were known for their questionable honesty and were not known for their academic erudition, named shepherds. And so the gospel is good news of great joy for all types of people. And we thank you for this day. For it made the Christmas season a time when the reality of Christ sings in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you.